Section 4 of Sri Nyaneshwar, A Sketch of His Life and Teachings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sri Nyaneshwar, A Sketch of His Life and Teachings by Anonymous. The appearance of these two books considerably enhanced the high reputation Nyaneshwar had attained. Unlike the politician, the Hindu saint requires no newspapers no organization for the propagation of his ideas. He need not even leave his place, and still thousands of people would come from the most distant corner, sit at his feet, and learn. Nyaneshwar had the same experience, and yet not content with the success his mission had achieved. He started ostensibly for a long pilgrimage, no doubt, but really to carry the truths of the Vedanta to the remotest parts of his country. He was accompanied by his brothers and sister by numerous friends and many disciples. The very fact that the party included such men as the goldsmith Narhari, the potter Gora, and the gardener Samfta, names respected to this day by even orthodox Brahmins, shows the extent of the awakening. The cry of free primary education of these days is only a revised edition, so to say, of the universal religious education prevalent in India since the days of Buddha. India never lacked education. When arts and crafts were not dependent upon literacy, the necessity of imparting secular education, in addition to the religious one, was justly not felt. The career of wealth, of glory, of ambition and heroism was open to the man who could not even spell his name, and who was as ignorant of the six systems of philosophy as of Homer or Virgil. At Pandarpur, the party was joined by Namdev, the son of a tailor, than whom the god Vidal had no more fervent devotee. To him, Vitoba was not the stable, stone, image that he is to the ordinary Bhakta. Namdev played and talked with him, was free to love and in moments of petulance and anger to chide the god, whose banner is even now carried by more than a million people in Maharashtra. It is unnecessary to follow the saintly group, visiting shrine after shrine, bathing in sacred rivers, blessing the weak, convincing the doubting, themselves alternately lost in mute ecstasy and eloquent song. The task of preaching bhakti and knowledge to the vast concourse of people who greeted them wherever they wended their way was generally entrusted to Namdev, whose power of waking up the latent fire of bhakti in the hearts of his hearers was unrivaled. Sometimes it was Gyaneshwar who addressed them, or Gora the potter, and Visobhakachar. It was a triumphal tour, and can favorably compare with the journey of the Swami Vivekananda from Colombo to Almora, when in 1896 he returned to India from his successful mission to the West. A few words are necessary to enable the reader to have a general idea of the religious revival of which Gyaneshwar was the pioneer. It has been sometimes stated that the revival was a revolt against caste and Brahmanical oligarchy, that it was a crusade against social abuses and inequalities, and that all the saints and prophets from Nyaneshwar and Namdev down to Tukaram and Ramdas carried on in their own way the work of social uplift, which interrupted owing to the wars and revolutions of the 18th century, has again been, under more favorable auspices, taken up by the great social reformers of the 19th century. There is more imagination than truth in this statement. It is true that they were social reformers in the sense they reformed the society of their times by holding up the ideals of charity, piety, benevolence, 
and God's surrender. The mind of man is generally too fond of the form and is often forgetful of the spirit, and by laying special emphasis on the essentials of religion, they did succeed in making the people think more of the spirit than of the forms. But it can never be truly said that they were social reformers in the accepted sense of the phrase, and the reason is evident. In the first place, it must be noted that from the 11th or 12th century to the end of the 17th, the influence of the Brahmin was purely intellectual. It is true that he was the repository of religious knowledge and was indispensable on occasions when religious ceremonies were to be performed, but in the body politic he occupied only a very subordinate place. Almost all the political leaders of those times, big Inamdars, and Jagidars, with administrative powers and military equipment, were non-Brahmins. Their wealth, their social status, their political influence might have excited the envy of any ambitious Brahmin. The Shirkas, the Mohitas, the Yadavs, the Bansalas, to name only a few, all these had nothing to envy in the social status of the Brahmin. Strangely enough, the Brahmin also was quite content with his lot. There was no rivalry, no jealousy, no competition between the Brahmin and the non-Brahmin. These evils did not creep till at least Balaji Vishwanath became the Peshwa in 1714. Till that time the so-called lion and the so-called lamb drank of the same stream. These religious preachers did not break the barriers of caste, simply because there were no serious barriers awaiting the advent of the social reformer. On the contrary, they tried to strengthen all those bonds which were calculated to keep alive the Varnashram system, which it was their ideal to reinstate. Their writings do not reek of that Brahminophobia which has characterized the utterances of so many non-Brahmins, especially during the last few months. They have, no doubt, scathing criticism on hypocrites and impostors, but these blessed souls are found in all classes alike, and the Brahmin had no special monopoly of them. They used their lash not on the Brahmin, but on vice. Their criticism was abstract and not concrete. They were for caste distinctions, although against caste jealousies. They were against intermarriages. They did not favor such violation of caste discipline as a Brahmin's taking his food from the hands of a sudra. Vide Neshvari, chapter 13, verse 674. Their mission was love, and that love no artificial fencing of caste or color could keep in bounds. On rare occasions they did indeed break these rules of caste, which again and again they have emphasized in their writings. To cite an example, Ekanath, 1528-1599, on one occasion took his meals in the house of a Mahar. But any reader who will care to read a hundred lines from his works will find that he is deadly against all breaking of caste discipline. Tukaram, himself a Shudra, has never for once even reviled the Brahmin because he is a Brahmin, and even he is in favor of all those caste distinctions which, owing to the blast of Western civilization, are rapidly disappearing in the clouds. We might break caste or maintain it, just as we please, but it is really unjust to drag the names of these saints in controversies, the issues of which can be decided on independent lines of thought and argument. What then was the mission of these saints and prophets? What is their place in the history of their times? What service did they render to the country? It was their glorious privilege to rouse the hearts of their countrymen to the faith which was their birthright, even in countries noted for their organizing power, 
there is the danger of the masses remaining comparatively ignorant of their religion. The story is told of a great bishop visiting one of the mining districts in England and asking one of the miners whether he knew Christ. What is his number? asked the man, thinking that Christ was his fellow laborer. That is the sort of ignorance which the leaders of the national thought ought to guard against, especially in times of wars and revolutions when the fate of the nation is in the melting pot. If Rama and Krishna had been to the Indian peasant no more than Christ was to this typical laborer, then the Muslim proselytizer would have succeeded in his mission quite easily and within no time. While estimating the services of the Maratha saints and prophets, the fact must never be overlooked that the period of the religious revival brought about by them synchronized with the occupation of the Maratha territory by the Muslim invader. Till the times of Nyaneshwar, the shock of the Muslim conquest was not felt in the Deccan. The North Indian plains were already red with the blood of thousands of soldiers, bravely but hopelessly fighting for the cause of their country and religion. The tide at last swept over the whole of Maharashtra, and when the Muslim came he brought not only his sword, but Koran also. This twofold mission of the Muslim adventurer, it was the duty of the nation to resist. The political leaders were weak and therefore helpless. Consequently, the invader established himself in the country almost without opposition. It was exactly at this time that the great wave of religious revival started. That is why, instead of being a controversial movement, it was entirely assimilative and synthetical. It was no time to quarrel whether Shiva was greater than Vishnu or whether the Advaiti was right and the Dvaiti or a qualified dualist wrong. All those controversies, whose echoes and re-echoes from some other parts of the country were still heard, were all hushed up. It did not matter which deity you worshipped so long as you remained a Hindu. The political unity which Shivaji only partially succeeded in making was preceded by social and religious solidarity. The Reformation movement in Europe, with which this movement is incorrectly compared, started long after the last crusade with the Turk was fought. But here in Maharashtra, the movement, as it synchronized with the rule of the Muslim, was essentially national, though inevitably disguised as religious. And as time passed on, as the political awakening became more and more pronounced, the religious leaders also became more and more national, until at last in Ramdas we see the patriot saint whose political fervor was equaled only by his religious faith. It is true that Tukaram never plunged into the flood, but only contented himself with standing on the bank of the national awakening. But even he, so indifferent to worldly matters, blessed the movement, and when Shivaji approached him in the spirit of a disciple, asked him to seek the aid of St. Ramdas as the fittest man to guide. When these points are remembered, the reader will see why the movement assumed this synthetical form, why the Brahmin still continued to monopolize his priest craft, why even those forms, ceremonies, and rituals which had outlived their usefulness were so jealously kept intact and observed with all the intense devotion of a fanatic. The one work, therefore, which the great saints of Maharashtra set themselves to do was awakening the hearts of the people and unifying them by the bond of love for God and religion, and this they did with a persistence and success that is truly marvellous. If even after the lapse of more than two centuries, quote, it is hard to convince people who have Tukaram in their mouth of the intrinsic moral superiority of the Bible, end quote, 
how much more difficult his task must have appeared to the Muslim missionary in dealing with the contemporaries of Anamdev and Tukaram, Ekanat, and Ramdas. Space forbids us from describing at great length the services of these saints and prophets to their language and literature, and yet it is impossible to pass over it in silence. It can safely be said that if there is any force, rhythm, or power of expression in the Maharati language, that is entirely due to these saints and prophets who, when Marathi was neglected everywhere, took this famished orphan and nursed it with all the love at their command. The language really stood in need of protectors. It did not find favor with the pundit who was too full of Sanskrit, and from the 14th century onward it ceased to be the official language. Discarded by prince and pundit, by court and camp, it sought shelter at the feet of these saints. It is their writings which gave Marathi a dignity which hitherto it lacked. Their success was sufficient to induce literary aspirants to imitate their example, and the result was a mass of literary matter of which perhaps a hundredth part only has hitherto been brought to light by Marathi antiquarians. They were prolific writers, all of them. To compose verses by the thousand was quite an easy thing with them. Their ambition was to write crores of verses. Namdev is credited with being the author of 96 crores of Abhanga's verses, and though this is a physical impossibility that shows the ambition of the writers or expectations of their readers, it is true that much of this literature is marred by a want of the sense of proportion, by artistic inelegance and by tiresome repetitions, but this is because the authors did not get any regular literary training and in spite of their literary faults, even the most prejudiced reader will have to admit that the works they have bequeathed us are full of the aroma of spiritual faith and insight. This is not the place to describe the growth of the Marathi literature or to describe how, from being the handmaid of religion, poetry grew to have an independent throne for herself. One or two points, however, deserve special mention. The literature of these times deals almost exclusively, directly or indirectly, with religious ideas and religious personages. It can roughly be divided into four parts. 1. The Exposition of the Vedanta. This is found in Dhyaneshwari, Amrita Nubhava, Ekanati, Bhagavad, and works of this type, all written in verse. 2. Songs of Religious Ecstasy, mostly composed in the Abhang meter which is an adaptation of the Anushtuk meter. 3. Didactic poetry, also in the same meter, containing maxims of good conduct, strictures on the vices of hypocrites, and 4. Stories from the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. This forms the narrative poetry which, written in various meters, has reached high-water mark in the writings of Sridhar, Mukteshwar, and Moropant. After his return from the pilgrimage, Nyaneshwar and his brothers, with their youngest sister, led an even course of life at Alandi. They never married, they never worked for their livelihood. They had only one occupation in life, service of God. If they saved society, that was solely because they wanted to serve God through society. To elevate the depressed and to console the miserable were the basic elements of their religion. As Mr. Tilak has truly said in his recent book on the Gita, quote, to make the individual soul universal, whereby the meanest creature in this world becomes only a manifestation of the Almighty, 
and therefore a meet object of worship, is the highest form of devotion compared to which the offering of incense and flowers to him in the privacy of your room or the solitude of the temple, though helpful, is far less elevating. End quote. It is a kind of yanana, this service of society, and the man who never draws a breath for himself is the greatest saint, such was Yaneshwar. But the success of his mission awakened the jealousy of many, some of whom had their own axe to grind. One of them was Changadeva, a great yogin claiming to have lived for fourteen centuries. Anxious to test Yaneshwar, he once started for Alandi. Riding on a fierce tiger, tamed only by the superior powers of yoga with a serpent for his whip, he marched, followed by a regiment of disciples. He had intended to vanquish Yaneshwar, but was himself half vanquished when he saw Yaneshwar coming forward to receive him by moving a wall. The conversation that followed convinced Changadeva that he had caught a tartar. Ultimately, he disbanded his disciples and himself became one at the feet of our hero. Whom the gods love, die young, says the proverb, and in this case the gods were but too anxious for the return of one of their own company. So on 25th of October, 1296, two years after Alauddin's invasion of the Deccan, Yaneshwar closed his brilliant career by entering into eternal samadhi amidst the subdued sobs of his own loving sister, brothers, disciples, and friends. He was barely twenty-two. Before the first anniversary of his death, his sister and brothers followed him too, unwilling to live in the void caused by their brother's death. So ends the story of Yaneshwar's life, the history of his inner struggles, if there were any, of his mental and spiritual development is hopelessly lost to us. What remains is a series of bare facts, happily well authenticated, and a succession of miracles whose account, proceeding though it does from contemporary writers, is in these days of rationalism often rejected. To my mind, the greatest miracle which this boy saint wrought was the immortal book which he composed when barely fifteen. There he stands before the mind's eye of his reader in the temple at Navasa, the light of knowledge radiating from his countenance, holding the audience bound by the spell of his eloquent words. To me, however, the picture is far less appealing than the other, in which the saint as yet undiscovered, begged from door to door, returning not railing for railing, but love for hatred, compassion for cruelty, and nobility for mean conduct. The children of the ostracized Fidal Pant became the religious leaders of their time. The beardless begging boy is the spiritual light of six centuries. He conquered Maharashtra and made it prostrate before the throne of Vitoba. From his time, Pandarpur became the Banaris of the Marathas. At a time when religion was in the hands of pandits and a sealed book to the people, he spread broadcast the truths of the Vedas, and what a love for his people. Himself a great yogin and a follower of the great Shankaracharya, for them he discarded like Vivekananda the bliss of Samadhi and the stimulating silence of the cave and worked for and amongst them. Personally, partial to Inanna only, he preached bhakti and sanctioned karma. He opened their heart and kindled their spirit, and though the political complications of the next two centuries put a temporary check on the religious revival, yet with the coming of Ekanat, it rose with a rebound, extended to the remotest corners of Maharashtra, 
and made religion first a rallying sound and then the war cry of the people. The religious revival made the subsequent movement against the Muslim conquerors possible, and though the credit of building Swaraj must be given to Shivaji and his followers, yet the contribution of the leading saints and prophets towards the development of the idea of nationality must never be overlooked, for the patriotism of those times was based not on economics, but on religion. End of section 4 And end of Sri Yaneshwar, A Sketch of His Life and Teachings by Anonymous <laughs>